Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me today. We've got some great conversation ahead of us. Yesterday was the feast day of uh, Gertrude the Great, or Gertrude of Helfta, and uh, one of the great mystics of the 13th century. She practiced a form of spirituality that's commonly called nuptial mysticism. Uh, in which she came to see herself as the bride of Christ and in a deep personal union with Jesus and his sacred heart. We're going to talk about her with uh, the medieval historian Rachel Fulton Brown, whose area of expertise is, in fact, Marian devotion uh, in the Middle Ages, but she's done a lot of work uh, when it comes to this concept of nuptial mysticism as, uh, again, it's a very important form of spirituality, still available and accessible to us today. So that's coming up in the second hour. Also, Father Donald Haggerty, he's the author of Contemplative Enigmas, Insights and Aid on the Path to Deeper Prayer. Um, We're going to look at the contemplative life. What is it? How do you define it? What are the steps uh, you take to enter into it? We're also going to be talking to Michael Ramirez. Michael is an editorial cartoonist for the Las Vegas Review Journal, but his cartoons are also, in an unusual arrangement, picked up also by the Washington Post. Well, it was uh, not last Tuesday, but the Tuesday before, that he published a cartoon mocking Hamas for using human shields uh, while it accuses Israel of targeting civilians. It was a potent cartoon, and um, unfortunately, when the Post published it, they got tremendous amount of criticism, and they pulled the cartoon off their website. The story is worth hearing, because it's a story, again, of the improper use of race as a veto over legitimate expression, especially on a vital political issue. Again, I wish I could show you the cartoon, and we'll have it available in the in the Cresta Guest Archive so you can see it yourself, but I... I uh, uh, we're just going to have to describe it, and hopefully that will, uh, you know, do it for you. Uh, so all that's coming up and more, but first, let's get to the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, November 17th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. The Israel-Hamas war is now on day 42. Israel is reportedly close to dismantling the military system in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, and its forces will start to focus on the southern part of the region. This all comes after the body of a hostage was found in a building close to Gaza's main hospital. Multiple reports are saying a hostage deal may be in the works between Israel and Hamas. The deal would free 50 women and children for the return of Palestinian prisoners. The exchange would coincide with a three to five day ceasefire. The reports have yet to be confirmed officially by either side. 
The threat of a government shutdown is over for now. President Biden signed a bill to keep the government funded through early 2024 Thursday night. The unconventional two-step plan extends funding at current levels for some agencies until January and others through early February. A looming volcano eruption in Iceland has residents on edge. I'm very scared and I don't know what is going to happen. My house and everything. I have lived in my house for 40 years. A crack in the earth began to spread through a small Icelandic town of Grindavik and hundreds of earthquakes have been recorded. All 3,800 residents have been forced to evacuate. The head of Iceland's emergency management said the magma was at a very shallow depth and they were expecting an eruption at any time. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Michael Ramirez. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Last, uh, well, I guess it was uh, not last Tuesday, but the Tuesday before. He published a cartoon mocking Hamas for using human shields while it accuses Israel of targeting civilians. It was featured in the Washington Post. Readers complained that the cartoon was racist. It was pulled off the Post website. Michael joins us right now. Michael, good to make your acquaintance. Thanks. Nice to meet you as well. This is a crazy story. I thought it was a, an incredibly effective cartoon. And who is the featured figure in it? So now this cartoon was designed with specificity. Yep. It focused on a specific individual, the statements that he made on behalf of the specific organization he represents, their claims of victimhood and the plight of innocent Palestinians that Hamas uses and their political and military strategy. So what happened was Ghazi Hamad, who was a senior Hamas official, was on television and it was big news, and he was uh, hailing the brutal October 7th attack, Mm -hmm. the systematic slaughter of 1,400 people. And uh, not only did he uh, celebrate that, he also said that he would repeat it over and over again until Israel's removed. That's right. So that was really the inspiration for this Human Shields cartoon. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you look at the cartoon, the cartoon has Hamas, and he's got children and women roped around him as a, as a human shield, and he's mm-hmm. saying, how dare Israel attack civilians? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the person is Ghazi Hamad. It looks like Ghazi Hamad. Mm-hmm. The main figure in the cartoons labeled Hamas. His words and innocence bound to him as human shields and their forced martyrdom reflect the official position of Hamas. So I, I don't understand. I, I mean, this is a cartoon that's calibrated uh, and reflecting the truth. Why anybody would take, uh, uh, well, why anybody would can, can want to pull it from a, no. a news site? I mean, I understand, and I always say that uh, I, I stand for the cartoon and I stand for people's criticism of the cartoon. That's what the First Amendment does. Yeah. But we we have to have uh, this free exchange of idea. That's the foundation of our democracy, liberty. Yeah. You know, Thomas Jefferson, I think, once wrote. <laughs> our, our liberty depends on the freedom of the press yep. that cannot be limited without it being lost. So let me also explain to you that this cartoon was part of an extraordinary collaboration between the Washington Post and my paper, the Las Vegas Review Journal. And the cartoon appears in both papers at the same time. 
So while the Washington Post pulled it, you know, I, I stand behind the cartoon, mm-hmm. and my paper stood firmly behind me. So it's up on the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal website. You know, I what did the what did the Washington Post say? What how did they how did they handle this with you? Well, uh, you know, I've got to say that I've got a uh, I've got a good relationship with David Shipley. He's, uh, he's, he's the he's, cartoon director. He's the editorial page editor yeah. of the Washington okay. Post. Okay. And so, the, let me kind of explain the process a little bit. Um, I don't look at other editorial cartoons just as a just as a general rule because we cover the same topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and, and I um, I do two cartoons a week for the Washington Post that run in the Las Vegas Re- Review Journal on Tuesdays and Saturdays. I have no idea what cartoons or issues or topics they've dealt with before. And so I give them a multitude of, of sketches. They're not allowed to edit them or change them, um, but a, a, a variety of topics. Um, and then David will usually pick one out or pick a couple out and let me make the final decision on which one to go with. That particular week, um, we both realized that I think that was the bo- the boldest and most powerful image, mm-hmm. and so um, David picked that. Now, when it all kind of blew up, uh, David gave me a call and, and was uh, trying to warn me about the kind of commentary uh, that accompanied below the, the cartoon. And then about an hour later, he told me that uh, the Washington Post decided to pull the cartoon. Wow. Now, I want to say that. Uh, I'm a big fan of David Shipley. He's he has a commitment to ideological diversity, and uh, I think he's expanding the scope of the editorial page. Okay. Let me go on record saying that I'm not. I was opposed to pulling the cartoon because the cartoon is perfectly legitimate. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's it's focused on a specific individual, a specific um, stand by specific terrorist organization. I think it's a, a little ironic that the uh, you know the very people that are criticizing the cartoon for overgeneralizing and stereotyping cannot seem to di- distinguish the difference between a known terrorist group and Palestinians. Yeah, right. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Yep. And um, I just think this is just another problem that we have on our radar where we've got uh, journalistic ad- advocacy, and people are kind of using the race card to eliminate uh, positions uh, that they don't agree with. Yeah, it's lazy. It, it's, it avoids dealing with the issue. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I always, I always say that the, uh, you know, the, the people that are using racism as a device to cancel the truth. Um, in this circumstance, it's the intellectually indolent. They can't defend the indefensible, so they pull out the race card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, again, I, I thought this was an incredibly effective cartoon. Um, I, I, the question of race didn't cross my, <laughs> hadn't crossed my mind. Um, you know, I sent, I sent out a bunch of caricatures that I've done of prominent politicians. Um, you know, I had a cartoon called The Shining 2024, which I don't know if you remember the scene with it, with the evil twin girls, kind of spooky twin girls. No, I don't. And I did Biden 
Yeah, well, in the movie The Shining, there's yeah. a scene where they have, they've got these twins, and they're kind of creepy looking. Right, right. And I've, I've transformed them into Joe Biden and Donald Trump. <laughs> and so you could clearly see that you have the same types of caricatures in those drawings. And then I, you know, I sent I sent a bunch of other ones with with Hamad Garthi. And if you look at the photos side by side to the characters, they're identical. Gavin Newsom, Alex Jones. <laughs> I had one with Elizabeth Warren with her, you know, her Indian bonnet <laughs> yeah, on. Right, a cartoon right. where where the guy was saying, "I'm sorry, Miss Warren, but uh, a Bolshevik is not an Indian tribe." <laughs> so, you know, it's a shame that this is this kind of nonsense is going on. And when you think about it, uh, you know, John Milton was crusading against censorship in 1644. You got John Stuart Mills in that beautiful essay on liberty uh, 215 years after that in 1859, uh, fighting for freedom and free expression. Why is it that we in 2023 are having to resurrect these battles again? Yeah. yeah. It's just silly when when you i mean you're you're a professional even uh, you know your work has been uh, praised you've received awards you know the you know the field um when do you, do you give me some sense of chronology here when do you think this just started to change have you, did was there a period maybe wasn't maybe it's always been there but was there a time when uh, this kind of lazy use of race uh, as, the, as a veto uh, on legitimate political opinion. When does that begin? Can you cite uh, you know, I, a period? I, I can't. I, well, I could tell you this. And I think it's a byproduct of our education system, the failure of our education system, where they're focusing on um, social engineering and brainwashing. Yeah rather than the fundamentals of education. I mean, when you look at us in comparison to Western industrialized nations, we're on the bottom level in reading and writing, science and math. So I could tell you as a political observer that uh, 15, 20 years ago, you could not get elected to office if you were a socialist. Right. And because these things are no longer defined and taught in school, I think it's brought along this wave of political correctness and, and, the, and the woke movement. Mm-hmm. where they're defining words and images as weapons that should be banned for offending political categories and self-defined, self-defined oppressed groups. Yeah. You know, it's kind of an Orwellian transforma- transformation of language to be used as weapons to neutralize people that you don't agree with and to, to suppress the voices that they can't, um, they can't combat. The bottom line is, I think these kind of progressives and ideologues, extreme ideologues, cannot defend their arguments with substantive, uh, you know, substantive proof. Right. And so the way to win your argument now is just not have the argument at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think the beauty of our liberty is that, that uh, we kind of forge consensus in the heat of debate. That, 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 to me, is what makes America such an extraordinary yeah. uh, country. Yeah, and it, you know, our, it's not conflict-free. I mean, that that's part of life. No, you, you're going to have difference. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have debate, discussion. You're going to have fights. Um, but that's the price we pay uh, for maintaining some sense of the truth. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, 
our, our founding fathers were brilliant, right? Yep. They they, uh, they knew the communication of ideas and information, the right to inform and be informed, the dissemination of ideas and conflict and resolution in our debates. Uh, we're all necessary components in this great republic because it's a political system based on self-governance and individual liberty. And, and um, so you have to have these kind of exchanges. Limiting the exchange of ideas uh, limits our freedom. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and they had that in mind when they designed the First Amendment. The First Amendment guarantees the freedom of speech. Right. It doesn't insulate you from the consequences of your speech. That's right. That's right. So, I think I think that's important to, to understand this. You know, I, I got a um, I got a letter from a, a, a high school kid in, from Australia, and she had asked me about the limitations on the uh, on the first, on on limits of speech, I guess. And I told her, you know, it may sound kind of sensitive, insensitive, but I think you should allow everything, you know, the most vile, vulgar, offensive, obscene pronouncements into the public forum. And while I don't encourage it, right. I don't think it should be disallowed because it defines who these people are and it exposes them for what they represent. I think social media has kind of changed that. Hmm. And uh, now you've got this kind of echo chamber of nonsense because, you know, before they would be scoffed at, now a hundred other crazy people joined. Joined them. That's right. That's right. And there's the the old role of the gatekeeper uh, over social communications really gone. And so it is really a mob mentality we're dealing with. Michael, thank you. Wonderful work. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thank you for having me on. Keep fighting the good fight. All right. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Where is the drama of prayer fully revealed? The Catholic Catechism tells us it is first revealed to us by observing Jesus Christ, the Word of God, in prayer. Then by hearing how He teaches us to pray in order to realize how He hears our prayer. Jesus learned to pray in His human heart under the guidance of His mother. He learns the rhythms of the prayers of His people in the synagogue at Nazareth and the temple in Jerusalem. But at the age of 12, he makes known that his prayer springs from an otherwise secret source, his relationship with God the Father. For example, he tells his earthly parents that he must be about his heavenly Father's business. Luke's Gospel emphasizes that before all the decisive moments of Jesus' mission, his baptism, his transfiguration, his passion, he prays, humbly committing his will 
to his fathers. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. In recent years, several states have been changing their laws on marijuana, either making it completely legal or legal for medical purposes. What do you think is the best policy? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Pull of the Week to share your thoughts. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. afternoon to you. Excuse me. I'm Al Cresta. It's been of of concern to many Christians that uh, we are living in a society which often will uh, speak to us about the need for universal order, a world in which love Uh, transcends our nationalistic boundaries, a world in which all people are regarded as members of a common common humanity. Well, a lot of emphasis on what used to be called the brotherhood of man. Not much emphasis, though, on the fatherhood of God, to use the old 19th century liberal Protestant vision of our time here. And there have been thinkers, uh, including my guest, who have noticed how the religion of humanity, humanitarianism, this focus on, you might say, establishing a universal uh, political and moral order now, subverts 
historic Christian thought, even while employing oftentimes uh, Christian or quasi-Christian vocabulary. My guest is Dr. Daniel Mahoney. He's author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College. He's a specialist in French political philosophy, anti-totalitarian thought, and the intersection of religion and politics. And uh, Dan, it's good to have you with me. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. This let's get let's get a historical running start on this. Um, oftentimes, this idea of a religion of humanity is traced back to the French thinker Auguste Comte. Uh, is that a good place to begin? It is. He's not distinctive in that regard. Well, he he was the first one to use the phrase religion of humanity and to turn it self-consciously in an, into an alternative religion as a displacement or replacement of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But I would say that with modern Enlightenment thought as a whole, there's a very strong humanitarian emphasis or animus, uh, the idea that uh, man is the measure of all things, the highest thing in the universe, and that human beings ought to... Uh, lower their gaze almost exclusively to the improvement of things in this world and reject the idea that the you know the final and ultimate destiny of human beings is beyond this world. But Combs important because uh, he combined positivism, the idea that metaphysics uh, and theology and philosophy were outmoded, and uh, as Combs famously said, we should not ask why questions. We should only ask how questions. Hmm. Of course, that does away with religion and philosophy immediately. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. But then he combined positivism. He realized that, to his credit in a way, that human beings were religious animals. But there is no God. There is no uh, transcendental order. So human beings have to worship what he called the grand être, the great being in French. And that was man. Mm. And uh, he was very self-conscious about it. Uh, you know, when you look at a Brazilian flag, it has the um, the two orbs, order and progress. And the Brazilian Republic was actually founded in uh, the early 1890s by disciples of August Comte. Hmm. Uh, August Comte wanted Comteanism, positivism, to be a mass movement the way Marx intended Marxism or communism to be a mass movement. But okay. one of the arguments in my book is that while very few people read August Comte today or are self-conscious disciples of him, for all intents and purposes, the religion of humanity is the reigning ideology among our intellectual elites globally. You know, so this 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 uh, humanitarian ethic. Uh, that puts, as you put it very nicely, it's it's a kind of love that is divorced from all the demanding requirements of biblical religion. Mm-hmm. You know, the self-overcoming, the self-limitation, um, uh, the idea that uh, human beings fundamentally um, need, need to display loyalty to right. country, right. to God, to church. This is a sort of easygoing love, and I think, and one of the theses of my book, I, and I think I see it, we, we see it all around us, is that what began as a open and belligerent assault 
on the truth of the Christian religion and its transcendental dimensions has more and more infected the churches themselves, first with liberal Protestantism, Mm -hmm. and increasingly, I think, with Catholicism, this idea of, uh, you know, identification of mercy, assuring, divorcing it from all punishment, from all repentance, from all law, Um, uh, you know, this... uh, uh, the idea that um, our, our principal political loyalties are to the world and right. not to the political common good in concrete political communities. So this is all humanitarianism. Yeah. But it's become, um, it's become, I think, the uh, default position, somewhat unconsciously, somewhat consciously, on the part of progressive-minded Christians. Just one, uh, one other quick thing. Sure. There's a very interesting line in the Regensburg Address that I quote near the beginning of the book where Pope Benedict says, Christianity is never reducible to a humanitarian moral message. Yeah, right. And I, I would say most of our contemporaries act as if Christianity is reducible to a humanitarian moral message. Yeah, as though... All that's important is, well, do you, do you serve humanity? Um, that's all that's important in their mind. Uh, they don't want to talk about the Trinity. Uh, they don't want to talk about uh, the mysteries of the faith, and uh, even the sacramental nature of Catholicism is given short shrift here. Uh, uh, let me ask... There's ask. also a reduction of charity to the corporal works of mercy, as important as they are. Um, it seems to me that to love one's neighbor and to love God is more demanding than uh, activism of one yeah. sort or another. It's not mere and altruism. Way, the humanitarian focus leads many people to be blind to movements and ideologies that claim to act in the name of humanity, right. in the name of the people, but are in, force, in fact are engines of oppression and the destruction of human dignity. Just think, uh, you know, totalitarian movements of the 20th century. It seems to me it's an easy error to fall into. You you talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, of course, does transcend uh, boundaries. Um, The kingdom of God does talk about universal uh, love. Um, And yet, the only way we learn to love universally is when we learn to love particularly. The only way I learn to be faithful to Jesus is by learning how to be faithful to my friends. <laughs> so what is it? Is it that this humanitarianism always focuses on the universal uh, without re- realizing the necessity of the particular? Well, that's a good part of it. I would say there's sometimes a tendency to confuse the eschatological or the ultimate spiritual realm with the concreteness of of things in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, when St. Paul says in Galatians, when he talks about neither Greek uh, nor Jew, yeah. etc., he's not denying that that uh, the particular distinctions that remain right. absolutely pertinent for this world. Yep. He's pointing to the kingdom and where, where those differences are overcome. Mm-hmm. But certainly, um, 
Um, uh, you know, think, think of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go forth to all the nations. Yeah. Um, one point I make in the book, too, is um, this kind of humanitarian... You're absolutely right that we only have access to the universal through an engagement with the particular situation uh, we're engaged in. I think that's the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yes. Um, the Good Samaritan uh, uh, aids the person in front of him. Mm-hmm. He's not committed to some abstract notion of helping humanity. Right. His right. neighbor is that person who's beaten, who's in front of him, and he does what the commandment of love involves. But it's concrete. The universal always reveals itself in particularity. And um, and by the way, one of one, and I was about to say another point I make in the book is, um, you know, when Jesus says love our enemies, he assumes we have enemies. <laughs> in other words, he's not endorsing right. a sentimentality that denies the realities of the world that really is evil. Mm-hmm. And one thing you mani- one thing I stress over and over again in the book is that humanitarianism is blind to what I call following Solzhenitsyn the drama of good and evil in the human soul. It assumes a kind of universal beneficence. It's blind to the power of evil. It's blind to conflict, conflict between good and evil as an important part of uh, not only politics, but of the providential design of God. Right. So it really is Christianity without the cross, it's love and mercy without repentance and law and punishment, it's a vague sense of universality and sentimentality without the concrete obligations, the, the loyalties that unfold in real human communities, right. churches, nations, families. It seems to me, too, that people who think along these lines assume that peace, unity, uh, universal brotherhood belong to the natural condition of, uh, of uh, humanity. That somehow, um, if, there's, uh, if there's a fragmentation into different political entities, that there's something wrong with that. I want to come back on the other side of the break and just ask you to talk to me a little bit about the assumption that the natural human condition is one of peace and brotherhood. My guest is Dr. Daniel Mahoney. It's an outstanding book called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. I'm Al Cresta. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit streetevangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. 
Kiro's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfkiro.com to learn more. That's cmfkiro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over. And you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. When kids get angry, a lot of parents just want to shut it down. Remember, though, that anger is a natural response to a perceived offense or need. Instead of just shutting down our kids' outbursts, it's better to help them learn to express their anger in ways that are appropriate, proportionate, and productive. Start by acknowledging and empathizing with their anger. Let them know you're happy to listen if they can express themselves appropriately. If they can't, give them some time to cool off, and when they're ready, offer to help them figure out a way to say their piece peacefully. Remember, it's not always wrong to feel angry. As parents, it's our job to help our kids harness the power of their anger for good. You can learn more about helping kids manage anger in our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit catholiccounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Daniel Mahoney. The idol of our age, how the religion of humanity subverts Christianity. Uh, in the uh, foreword to the book, uh, Dan, uh, you, uh, the, uh, the French uh, political philosopher, Pierre Manet, I think is his name, writes, That's Pe- right. Peace and unity belong to the natural condition of mankind, and conversely... It's fragmentation into separate political bodies, solicitous of their independence, 
is the toxic fountainhead of everything that is wrong in human circumstances. So the aim there, then, is to uh, somehow uh, unite humanity through weakening uh, borders um, to make sure that uh, wealth is redistributed uh, and to help cultivate a certain universal sentiment uh, in people. Why why is that assumed when when fighting between people is something that you learn in grammar school? The natural condition yeah. is, you know, when you're thwarted, you get frustrated. When you're frustrated, you get angry. When you get angry, you pop somebody in the nose. Well, I think for two and a half centuries now, there's been a divide um, in uh modern thought between those who believe that evil is intrinsic to the human condition, that we can never eliminate it, but we can only, uh, through civilized institutions, mm-hmm. through religion, through um, heroic efforts, we can restrict it, we can control it. But I think there's another view uh, identified with Rousseau in a somewhat complicated way, but certainly vulgarized over the last two centuries, that believes that evil is rooted in unjust structures Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. institutions. And if we only eliminate the source of those evils, get rid of nations, Mm -hmm. get rid of various manifestations of particularity, if we uh, get rid of, uh, you know, this is, you know, in the beginning of the 60s in progressive Christian circles, people started talking about social sin, which is another real, another way of saying, of course, there can be unjust institutions, but there's also original sin. (laughs) That's right, (laughs) yes. You know, and um, there's a great story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Earth's Holocaust, where a group of social reformers try to eliminate all the evils in the world, and they build a giant bonfire. And they end up throwing out, you know, subversive books and women's clothes and alcohol. And, you know, and, and at the side of this bonfire is a rather malevolent-looking figure, who I take it as Satan, who comments at the end, well, the one thing they didn't throw into the bonfire was the human heart. <laughs> so, you know, oh, uh, Hawthorne, in his own way, was rehabilitating or endorsing the uh, the age-old Christian or biblical view of the original sin. Mm-hmm. So if, we were, if we're Christian realists, we, of course, work to reduce the incidence of violence. We oppose unjust wars. We oppose wars of aggression. Mm-hmm. We oppose cruelty. But we also recognize, for example, that just war is an instrument of the common good for the maintenance of what St. Augustine called the tranquillitatis ordinis, the tranquility of order in the human world. And uh, one sees, I see, you see this in Rome, uh, um, a drift toward pacifism. Yeah. But pacifism is really, and I argue this uh, rather vehemently, a form of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Because it says nothing is worth fighting for. And nothing's worth no dying inno- for. Yeah. No, nothing is worth dying for, and, and no innocents are worth defending. So in the guise of sentimentality, in the guise of a higher morality, it severs us from those duties and obligations that are inescapably civic, or inseparably civic, and Christian, and moral. So 
I'm very worried. I mean, capital punishment, you know, what, Jesus affirmed it, St. Paul affirmed I, it, I Augustine know. affirmed it, Thomas affirmed it, yeah. Pius XII affirmed it, John Paul II affirmed it. Now we're told yeah. it was a monstrous Inadmissible, mistake. yeah. yeah it's well, if you can do that with capital punishment, you can do it with just war. And yeah. you can make pacifism, which is really a central imperative of the religion of humanity. You can confuse that with the requirements of the gospel. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we have to be deeply concerned about this drift toward a kind of sentimental nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I I, I, I do not understand... Wh- I mean, I, I actually, I fear I do understand why that uh, uh, Pope Francis made that adjustment to the catechism by inserting the word inadmissible in terms of... We had reached the point where I think most people were settled in the idea that, well, you know, if we've got better ways uh, of uh, protecting the innocent, we should use them so that we give the perpetrator more time for repentance. But if you need to use capital punishment, use it. Uh, well, now, know, we, now we don't have that anymore. had a special uh, vocation. She prayed for people who were about to be executed. Yeah. She was not like that nun in Louisiana who demonstrated that they not be executed. Yeah. He prayed that they convert and repent before their execution. That's right. By the way, I think most of us can agree capital punishment is a sad necessity. Uh, It ought to be used sparingly. But but look at the state of Israel. They've executed one person since 1948. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And that was Eichmann. And it's very hard to argue that Eichmann, who systematically organized the deportation of uh, millions of European Jews to death camps was not. Um, uh, I, you know, on this, I think uh, the the the, more, the philosopher Kant had it right. He said, when we execute a heinous killer, we're not degrading them; we're showing respect for them yeah. as a moral agent. That's right. It, it, That's the traditional view. And now, by the way, I think it's more or less the traditional Christian view. So That's how we, I look at it. It, yeah, it's, so it's, we're, think, we're granting them moral significance. We're saying right. your choices are meaningful, and uh, in this act, in this choice of evil, uh, we've got to demonstrate what's an, what's the appropriate response to that kind of moral right, infraction. Right, right. Yeah, but I uh, but I feel much more strongly about the issue of just war because if free and civilized communities cannot defend themselves right. against terrorists against armed aggressors, against totalitarianism, then, in effect, we abandon our concrete obligation, rooted in the order of charity, to defend the political common good. And I think that's something gravely important would be lost if uh, Christians succumb to that kind of sentimental humanitarianism. Yep. Yep. Talk to me about some of the, the figures that you uh, discuss in your book uh, th- that people may not be very familiar with. Orestes Brownson, for instance. Well, Orestes Brownson is absolutely amazing. There's kind of an Orestes Brownson revival going on right now. It started in the 50s with Russell Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, 15, 20 years ago, Peter Augustine Lawler, great right. Catholic political thinker who died last year, put out a new edition of the American Republic. Uh, Brownson's great book showing how Catholicism and American Republicanism at their best and highest are compatible. Um, and Richard Reinch has done a beautiful volume called Seeking the Truth, 
uh, published by CUA Press of Brownson's writings. There's a new volume of his Catholic writings out from Notre Dame. Brownson, quite remarkably, had been an adherent of Comte and the religion of humanity in the 1830s. He bought into the whole thing. And he had a simultaneous conversion around 1844 to both Catholicism and to what he called Republican small-R politics. Hmm. Uh, But he argued, if we root American republicanism in humanitarian premises, uh, denying the sovereignty of God, we invite a willfulness, a tyrannical impulse that will undermine both the truth of the Christian religion and the stability and lawfulness and decency of free Republican government. So I think Brownson is extremely relevant because he was a critic of humanitarianism in and out of the church uh, right from the get-go, right from the beginning. And he had lived through it. He had bought into it, and he came to see how repulsive and inhuman it was in decisive respects. I look at Vladimir Soloviev, um, especially his short tale of the Antichrist, uh, you can read that along with Benson's Lord of the World. But yes. they both present an Antichrist who is a peacenik, a sentimentalist, a one-worlder, uh, one who really, if we want to put it retrospectively, who succumbs to the temptations uh, that Satan put forward uh, forth to the Lord in the desert. You know, that his kingdom would be of this world, that he would... Uh, and to quote the Grand Inquisitor of Dostoevsky, would give men bread first and worry about <laughs> virtue later. Right, right. And, um, and uh, uh, Soloviev's short tale of the Antichrist is a warning about what he calls the falsification of the good, that things like love and mercy and peace be- can become falsified and become instruments of the Antichrist. Very, very powerful uh, piece of uh, religious and political literature that I think is very, very relevant to our situation. I look at Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, for his critique of Tolstoy, who identified um, Christianity exclusively with pacifism. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, who, of course, helped almost single-handedly to bring down communism, Solzhenitsyn believed that Christians had an obligation to engage in what he called the active struggle against evil. And when he looks at 1917, how did the Bolsheviks, the communists, come to power in Russia? How did they kill 50 million people? He looks at Tsar Nicholas and he says, here was a good man, a good Christian, a good family man, who was utterly pusillanimous, who did not have the strength uh, to defend legitimate authority when the revolution came. So I look at a series of figures... Uh, one other I should mention, Oral Kolnai. Kolnai is a Hungarian Catholic convert. He was Jewish. He became Catholic. He was a very early critic of Nazism and then communism. He, um, he warned as early, he wrote a beautiful essay, which I reproduce as an appendix, The Humanitarian Versus the Religious Attitude. Hmm. And already in 1944, he saw that this subversion of Christianity by humanitarianism was all about it would gain force, and he worried that um, um, in the name of humanity, in the name of sentimentality, things like abortion and euthanasia would become 
requirements of an allegedly free society. So in some sense, Colnai was a great prophet. He saw that this process of displacing the religious attitude by the humanitarian attitude and then subverting the religious attitude by confusing it with the humanitarian attitude was the way for the future. And he saw all that in 1944. Well, I'll tell you, this is, uh, it, this is very important stuff. It really does help. Uh, I think all of us to better define our own situation in the uh, the political and moral choices we have in front of us. I'd like to have you back again, Dan, to continue the conversation. Uh, That's great. Okay. It, it, and I just hope a lot of people think they're adopting a Christian approach when, in fact, they're adopting an approach that has been subverted by categories that yep. are fundamentally anti-Christian. Yes, that's right, and uh, we've got to develop better discernment here. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Thanks, Al. Bye-bye. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Mahoney, it's called The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. This is one of the most important lessons that we must learn and be able to articulate it, because a significant percentage, perhaps a majority of Catholics, have those sentiments woven into them that are not of grace, but of the flesh. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh... I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I want to say again that you can get Daniel's book, The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. That's available in the online bookstore. Uh, again, wonderful insight uh, in this book. Uh, this 
false notion that the human is the measure of all things uh, has really become, well, it goes back a few hundred years, but it's become dominant now. And uh, it even influences Christian thought. I mean, mainline Protestantism has gone down this road. There's certain Catholics um, that have actually, we're seeing them now, uh, again, making the, the human being, not God, but the human being becomes the measure of all things. So the book's available in the online bookstore. Uh, head on over there. Um, now, coming up next hour, we're going to talk about a woman who God was the measure of all things. Christ was the measure of all things for her. Talking about Gertrude of Helfta, Gertrude the Great, one of the wonderful mystics of the 13th century. She is known best as a, uh, an exponent of what was called nuptial mysticism. It has to do with a, the wedding union with Christ, she being the bride, he being the bridegroom. We're going to take time with uh, medieval historian Rachel Fulton Brown to look at Gertrude Grape, and then we're going to look at the road to contemplation with Father Donald Haggerty. So stay with me. A lot more coming up. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, once again, it's good to be with you. We've got an hour ahead of us talking about the things that matter most, like nuptial mysticism. Probably not a phrase that we run around chanting every day, but it is a great uh, reference to the kind of mysticism that we see in a number of the great uh, medieval mystics, like Gertrude of Helfta, Gertrude the Great, as she's known. The spirituality is called nuptial mysticism, and she came to see herself as the bride of Christ, and then she has the deep personal union with Jesus, the bridegroom. Medieval historian at the University of Chicago, Rachel Fulton Brown, has been a student of the various medieval mystics. And so she's joining us to talk about Gertrude the Great coming up, uh, oh, first segment of the program after the news break. And then we're going to take time to look at the contemplative life with Father Donald Haggerty. You know, despite signs of crisis in the church, there are many great things going on. One of the things that have happened over the last generation has been the interest in contemplative prayer among lay Catholics. Uh, there's been a strong desire to enter more intensely into our union with Christ. And so Father Haggerty is going to share that with us uh, coming up in this hour as well. But first, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, November 17th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University, your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. The Israel-Hamas war is now on day 42. 
Israel is reportedly close to dismantling the military system in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, and its forces will start to focus on the southern part of the region. This all comes after the body of a hostage was found in a building close to Gaza's main hospital. Multiple reports are saying a hostage deal may be in the works between Israel and Hamas. The deal would free 50 women and children for the return of Palestinian prisoners. The exchange would coincide with a three to five day ceasefire. The reports have yet to be confirmed officially by either side. The threat of a government shutdown is over for now. President Biden signed a bill to keep the government funded through early 2024 Thursday night. The unconventional two-step plan extends funding at current levels for some agencies until January and others through early February. A looming volcano eruption in Iceland has residents on edge. I'm very scared and I don't know what is going to happen. My house and everything. I have lived in my house for 40 years. A crack in the earth began to spread through a small Icelandic town of Grindavik and hundreds of earthquakes have been recorded. All 3,800 residents have been forced to evacuate. The head of Iceland's emergency management said the magma was at a very shallow depth and they were expecting an eruption at any time. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Gertrude the Great, uh, also known as Gertrude of Helft, was one of the great mystics of the 13th century. Uh, we, in fact, celebrate her day, although there's some dispute whether she died on the 16th or 17th, I guess, uh, but 16th, her feast day. Uh, I wanted to make sure we got some conversation in about her, because if you're like me, you probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, you know, 12th, 13th century Catholic mystics, and uh, I need to know more. So I've asked Dr. Rachel Fulton-Brown to join us. She's Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago, where she specializes in medieval European religions, uh, liturgy and prayer, and devotion to the Blessed Mother. Rachel, good to have you back here. Thanks. Oh, thank you for having me, Al. Tell me a little bit about uh, Gertrude the Great or St. Gertrude of Helfta. How old was she when she, uh, you know, well, I assume she was raised in a pretty intensely Catholic environment. Well, famously, yes, she was. Um, she joined the convent when she was a young child, five or six, yeah. right? Um, but she she de- uh, describes in her own um, account of her life how she wasn't a very good nun okay. <laughs> for the for the first twenty years of, of of that time until she's in her mid twenties or wow. so. Wow, she, she, okay. she was very well educated in the convent. Um, it's at Helsa, right, which is a Benedictine community, although associated with the Cistercians. Um, and she had, you know, an excellent education, but she says she wasn't, um, you know, particularly pious until until in her mid-20s. And then um, um, famously um, had a vision of, of our Lord um, in the, the classic Western spirituality account of, of this vision. He appears to her in the form of a beautiful youth, inviting her to a conversion of life into close union with himself. Wow. Um, and after that vision, as, as she tells it, you know, she, had, she continued to have um, usually liturgically-based experiences. So she'll be talking about 
you know, I, we were in the liturgy for this or that day, and the Lord appeared to me, and and we had this conversation, right? Huh, so, yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing that she's. I mean, she's um, one of one of the great Benedictine nuns of of the Middle Ages, but she also has a a, a fairly detailed account of how she wasn't the best nun to start with. <laughs> so, so I mean, the begin the first of these. Uh, uh, visions that she has, I mean, is, it, is that kind of a moment of conversion for her? Or was she, prior to that, already uh, getting serious? The way she tells it, it was because of the vision, okay. right? And, okay. um, I mean, I think it's, it's always difficult in retrospect, because, you know, with the way we tell our conversion stories, or the way we remember what was going on is, is complicated. And, of course, the, the the famous book that um, includes her visions, The Herald of Divine Love, some parts of it she wrote, but some parts of it were written about her by the sisters in her community. So it's it's kind of tricky to figure out exactly, at least in, in The Herald of Divine Love, which parts are other people watching her yes. and, and learning from her, and which parts are her own interior experience. Okay. Uh, are there portions of it which are indubitably hers? I, I think so, but what I was I was thinking when, when you invited me on, it's like, well, which, what would I like people most to understand about Gertrude? And yeah. she's, she's famous for her visions, but she also wrote another little book, um, which is... Um, the title is given to it as spiritual exercises, but I think mm-hmm. that's that's just a sort of there is a, and and she basically in these exercises gives some instructions yes. on how to have your own experiences. And um, I I chose out a few passages that I thought maybe people would enjoy that'd be great listening to and and hearing and and to understand that when we say she had visions, she had them in the context of this kind of training in the liturgy and in prayer and in these spiritual exercises she's giving you a glimpse into what that experience was actually like for her so very good um is that good oh yeah love it sure go ahead Uh, um so this one is from an exercise called uh she called an exercise of praise and thanksgiving and it opens with some instructions um now and then set aside for yourself a day on which without hindrance you can be at leisure to praise the divine and to make amends for all the praise and thanksgiving you have neglected all the days of your life to render to God for all the good he has done. And that will be a day of praising and thanksgiving and a day of jubilation, and you will celebrate the memory of that radiant praise with which you will be jubilant to the Lord for eternity, when you will be satisfied fully by the presence of the Lord, and your soul will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Um, so that that gives you the sense of, I mean, one that she just brings to these meditations such joy and desire to be with God in love, but that it's, you know, also out of our sense of we've neglected to give God the praise that we should. And yes. she was conscious of that in her own early life, right, that she had not spent her life, her early life, concentrating on praising God. So this is that kind of exercise to help you into the experience. And it goes on for several several pages, but just to give you a flavor of one of the meditations she gives you. Um, I, I like that. So, yeah. So she, she takes a day. So the, the the idea take that take a day, set it aside. Don't be. Make sure you're not undistracted, uninterrupted. And again, uh, in a sense, load into that day. Uh, the what all the Thanksgiving that you have neglected in the past. Exactly. Yep. So we're going through a variety of meditations, and here, for example, at one point she says. At this point, as if all of you clinging to God, your lover, 
pray to the Lord that he himself, with his much-beloved mother, Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and with all the heavenly militia, offer himself as a sacrifice of jubilation in the cheerful festival of his merriest love, and that he himself, the most dulcet kithara player, sing first with the vocal organ of his divinity and with the kithara of his humanity, then <laughs> say these words with heart and mouth. May the divinity of your imperial trinity, your essential unity, the uniqueness of your persons, their dulcet fellowship, and their mutual intimate familiarity be jubilant to you on my behalf, God of my life. Um, There's a variety of meditations, but for example, another one. May that most dulcet heart, the only refuge during my sojourn, which is so lovingly kind and always solicitous of me, and will never rest in thirsting for me until at length it receives me forever to itself, be jubilant to you. May the worthiest heart and soul of the most glorious Mother Mary, whom, because of my need for salvation, you chose for yourself as mother, and that her motherly clemency might always be open to me, be jubilant to you on my behalf, and and so forth. And that goes on for many salutations. But the, 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 what I love about that imagery is we're, we're singing with the vocal organ of of um, Christ's divinity and the and the kithara, the harp of his humanity, that she has this this musical praise and. Is he a guitar player? Well, see, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the word guitar comes from that kithara, so, yeah. Oh. Possibly, and and that she becomes famous for her devotion to the the Sacred Heart, right? Yes. So you see how the the, the Sacred Heart is something that she hears singing to her, that dulcet heart. Um, Yeah. what she is she does she this idea of the sacred heart where is it does that where does that originate you know I, I what's interesting to me is it's as a devotion i think it's it's really later it's sort of 18th century that's what um, i thought that yeah becomes, that she becomes famous for it but um in the 18th century gertrude is picked up as one of the ones who describes this this experience gotcha. of love from the heart I, i'm not positive she's the first to use it but it is uh um, there late medieval meditations, for example, Henry Suzo, um, you know, focuses on having the, the name of Christ in, uh, tattooed on his chest, as it were, and he has a lot of heart imagery as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's certainly a, a medieval um, focus. But she's doing it with this musical element, right? Yeah. Um, and and in, in the process of this, you become refreshed by your praising of God and, and then address God. And in the, in the, the fullness of this meditation... Then you come to this vision, and, and a, this is the last passage I had that, that she gets to. So you've been meditating on the joy and thanksgiving and the music and the heart. Then will be presented to you the chalice of vision, the inebriation and very bright chalice of the glory of the divine countenance. And you will drink from the torrent of divine voluptuousness, and you will become inebriated when the fountain of light itself refreshes you eternally in the delights of its fullness. Wow. Then you will see the heavens full of the indwelling glory of God and that virginal light giver that, after God, lights up the entire heaven with the brightness of its cleanest light and the miraculous works of the fingers of God and the morning stars that always so merrily stand before the face of God ministering to him. Oh, mercy. That's... <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like how can you? It's like to be rat. You you understand why? I mean, when William James is talking about her in his uh, the varieties religious experience, yeah. right? He yeah. he famously sees her as nuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, she's 
she's so wrapped up in this feeling of love for God yeah. and, and his love for her and, and this, this joyous delight. But it's one that she, she recognizes we're all invited to if we share in the Thanksgiving. And, and, and there's, um, there's a sense of sequence to it. It doesn't seem to be all over the place. Uh, this is a this the, 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 this chalice of inebriation is climactic, right? I mean, you kind of work up to that. Yes, exactly. And what I I you know personally very much enjoy about meditations like Gertrude is they're they're grounded absolutely in the liturgy. Yeah. Um, that they're 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 structured around the the, the feast days. They're structured on the sacraments. Um, the imagery is all, you know, grounded beautifully in Scripture and in our experience of, of the liturgy. So by no means is she just making this up right. out of her, you know, own imagination. It's her imagination engaging with her liturgical practice. Yes, yes. Um, it, it really is uh, really overwhelming with uh, imagery and uh, encourage, encouragement of us to go deeper. How did she get along with her uh, fellow nuns? I think well. I mean, I think they, they in their account of her own visions, um, describe her as, as you know, the, the figurehead, figurehead in a good way, right? An example. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I don't know off the top of my head of stories of difficulties that she had. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'd never heard of any either. But yeah. oftentimes people think that somebody who is so um, gifted with a, a visionary experience that somehow they are not um, that they could be difficult. Uh, they they could be uh, prima donnish or something like that. But there's just no hint of that that you've come across in Gertrude. Not that I know of. Yeah, yeah, no, me either. Um, what uh, do you know much about the hi- the history? We got about a minute and a half left. Do you know much about how uh, she was received? Was she always recognized uh, as great, or was there a period of time in which she was set aside? People forgot about her. So now you're outside of my expertise. One of my colleagues, Anna Harrison, has a a lovely study of Gertrude. And my my sense is, I mean, we have this sort of trope of, you know, that there were no women in in medieval Christianity or there are no women recognized. And that's never been true. That's that's nonsense. (laughs) No, I know. I, I think, I mean, certainly by the 18th century, when I know of her from an American context, right, there are many... Um, images of her, particularly in the American Southwest, um, oh. because she's so loved in, say, Santa Fe. Yeah, that, that you see Gert, images of Gertrude there. I I don't have any sense that she was forgotten. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Rachel, let me thank you again for being with me, and it's really helpful. I hope we can call on you again because uh, there's so many of these outstanding figures of the Middle Ages that most of us don't have any firsthand, you know, acquaintance with. So thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Rachel Fulton-Brown, Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago, where she specializes in liturgy, prayer, medieval, European uh, piety, and devotion to the Blessed Mother. I'm Al Cresta. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence 
of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. Despite signs of a crisis uh, in the church, as I've pointed out many times, there's an, um, an astounding amount of uh, great things going on. Not only explosions of new uh, apostolic efforts, but there's a strong countercurrent of intense interest in prayer in serious spiritual life that's at work today, and uh, a greater esteem for contemplative prayer. My guest, Father Donald Haggerty, is a priest of the Archdiocese of New York, serving at St. Patrick's Cathedral. He's the author of several books, and we've talked with him before. Most, recent, though, most recently, though, he's uh, given us Contemplative Enigmas, Insights and Aid on the Path to Deeper Prayer. Father, good to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you, Al. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, let's go about what I mentioned in the beginning here. Let's touch that for a minute. We hear people uh, time and again, uh, and I'm in that same camp as well, who've had to complain that uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of problems that we're facing, especially at least within American Catholicism, and yet at the same time uh, we see a countercurrent of greater interest in prayer, uh, and we see, uh, especially among the laity, an outburst of uh, apostolic activity. How do you put those two things together? Well, it's a good question, and, you know, perhaps this has always been the case in the Church. You know, we live in our own time, and we see, you know, some stark polarities now, and also difficulty in the Church. But there have always been people... You know, attracted to the deeper, more intense interior life with God, what we're seeing now, which is uh, you know a great phenomenon, is many lay people are taking very seriously the life of prayer and taking seriously the challenge of an authentic holiness. And of course, that does depend on a serious approach to prayer. And what I've tried to do in the in the three books I've written with contemplative themes is to you know, pose the, what I think is a true reality, that we don't have to be in a, in a monastery or a cloistered convent to be receiving in time, if there's dedication over some years, to be receiving contemplative graces. And I have seen that, that in lay people, I've seen it in religious, such as missionaries of charity, who are very active in their apostolic life. So I think for lay people who are serious about prayer, it's good to have more knowledge of some of the um, the path and some of the difficulties that that arise on that on that journey, so mm-hmm. to speak. Did you write uh, about self-offering, and uh, you talk about uh, the loss of self thresholds and the loss of self in this book? What what when we say go deeper into prayer, what does deeper mean? Well, I think, uh, you know, that's a, it could be a trite word, or it could be, a, you know, this great reality. You know, we're, we're coming into an encounter with God every time we pray, and especially if we pray in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And I may mean, tell people often here at St. Patrick's, you know, you've not just come into a building, and you've certainly not come into a museum. You've come into a place where... God is present, and this kind of deeper awareness of greater conviction over time in faith, you know, the drawing of our heart 
our soul, not just an emotion, but this kind of deeper soul longing that can take place the more we, um, in a sense, engage the mystery of God in a personal way, and we allow God to, if we're receptive to Him, then something definitely does take in place that takes us to deeper waters. I mean, I love that phrase of Jesus you're familiar with when he said to Peter, put out the deeper water. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's really a statement about prayer, about spiritual life. Uh, you write that sacrifice, like the soul itself, has layers of secret depth. We should try in our prayers to enter inside these neglected layers, for they conceal intensities of love we may not suspect. How do we how do we um, uh, penetrate those layers? Uh, how do we shed the resistance to going deeper or setting out into the deep? Well, um, that that you know initial uh, paragraph that I begin the book with uh, is the idea that uh, there are acts that we can make of the interior life acts of offering, you know, to God that do take us into, they will take us with grace and into greater depth in relations with Him. And uh, I mentioned in that first chapter, I have, you know, many years of close uh, relationship with the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa sisters, Mm -hmm. and Mother Teresa, from in her first group, when she was first beginning the Missionaries of Charity, she taught her sisters to pray this ejaculation, take all but give me souls. And it's a phrase that goes back, they say, to uh, St. John Bosco, perhaps to St. Francis de Sales, even. <clears throat> but it's a, you know, if you think about the perf- profundity of those words, take all but give me souls. Yeah. And I think these kind of self-offering prayers, not just, you know, the kind of quick morning offering, but you know, the more we're offering ourselves, even if we go to Mass and we say to our Lord, I offer myself in union with your sacrificial offering here, these kind of acts take us into a deeper uh, union with our Lord in the mystery of his own passion, and a greater offering of our own, our own life takes place. Um, so, and I, I think they can be looked upon as their sacrificial acts of the interior life. Mm-hmm not just the practice, for instance, of a self-denial that might be a Lenten mortification. Sure. Um, you quote uh, St. Edith Stein here, to give oneself to God, recklessly forgetful of self, not to take account of one's own individual life, to allow full room for divine life. This is the profound motive, the principle, and the end of religious life. The more perfectly this is carried out, so much the richer is the divine life that fills the soul. Again, staying with this theme of entering more deeply in giving of oneself more fully. Um, to be forgetful of self uh, means, I, I assume in this respect, means to have one's attention uh, wrapped up in the awareness of God, and um, uh, what what becomes, and in some way, in some mysterious way, this is actually transformative for the self, which is, (laughs) which one is forgetting, 
uh, as is going about this. <clears throat> what is it about our preoccupation with God that renders us better selves? Well, I think it's part of the dynamism, if you want to say, of the spiritual life that, you know, most people can say that many of your listeners may be married couples and uh, married people, and, you know, if you fall in love with someone, you know, you're going to be married and you Mm -hmm. remain in love in that marriage, you know, your attention is, without effort, you know, drawn toward the other. And, you know, there's a greatness in this reality also with God, that the more we are, you know, taken up with Him, there's a kind of generous impulse that turns us from attention on self and, you know, toward Him, toward wanting His will, toward wanting to give to Him. And that that same dynamism is taken outside a, uh, outside of prayer, which is why these saints, or missionaries of charity as an example, you know, they're so generous in their self-giving, and I think because, you know, they have serious lives of prayer. So, you know, love is, by its nature, it's, it's going to be self-forgetful, because the, the attention is on someone who is a beloved. Yes. And it's not a practice as much as a, a supernatural or natural uh, flow from, from the life of love. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's and that's what people who are serious about prayer will discover. But it's also a good question, too, because when people pray, you are spending time alone in a certain way, and there has to be an effort there. We have to put our attention away from self, yeah. you know, to leave the self alone, you know, to, in a sense, place ourselves in, in the mercy of God and humbly, you know, turn ourselves to the gospel or to a crucifix to an image of Mary and allow our attention, our focus and concentration to be turned toward him, to pray in front of a monstrance, and we see the host and we can know in conviction God is there. Yes, yes. The, uh, the What about the quality of our attention? Um, I, I know in my own experience, um, I, 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 when I'm aware of my um uh the intensity of my focus uh it helps me to pray longer it also enables me to pray with more immediate uh, meaning um is there something significant is there is does that make a difference i guess is what i'm saying in terms of our relationship with god that our attention would be clearer uh more focused or, uh, you know, sometimes we, we don't have much attention, especially when we're in pain. Our attention is, is shot, but we still try to pray. What's the, what's the yeah, difference? Again, yeah, go ahead. I mean, again, that's a, a good question because, you know, we all suffer at times, you know, from fatigue of our mind and, you know, the, uh, the consequence of certain inattentiveness. You know, the mind can wander. Teresa of Avila, in one passage of her works, she... She had a uh, a locution, I believe, of our Lord, and she was she was complaining before it about the difficulty of a wandering mind. Mm-hmm. And Jesus spoke to her and said, "My daughter, you will always have a wandering mind. They, you know, 
that's part of the condition of, of, of the human condition. And there is no, you know, freedom of that even in a desert. But the effort to, um, to focus is important because, you know, to have some, sometimes to look at perhaps an image of our Lord, a crucifix, you know, to stay with one verse of the gospel sure. or the psalm, you know, to allow something to, to soak into us so yes. that it really grabs our attention. Very good. My guest, Father Donald Haggerty, is, has written an outstanding book. It's called Contemplative Enigmas. It's part of a trilogy that he's written on contemplation. We're going to continue conversation in just a moment. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Rochelle. I'm going to tell you about the most abused woman I ever met in my life. You know her name as Roe, as in Roe versus Wade. I talked to Roe. This woman is a great penitent. This woman is a humble person who was deeply hurt. She was kneeling in the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, the National Shrine in Washington when I met her. And I thought, what reverence. I didn't know who this woman was, but she was praying with reverence, with great fervor. And I asked a priest friend of mine, who is that? And he says, oh, that's Roe. God is not mocked. This woman was abused by those who propagate the killing of children. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How is the priestly prayer of Jesus unique in the economy of salvation? 
According to the Catholic Catechism, it is unique because it reveals the ever-present prayer of Jesus and at the same time contains what Jesus teaches us about our prayer to our Father. As Jesus fulfills his Father's plan of love, he gives us a glimpse of the depth of his filial prayer when he agonizes in the garden, Abba, not my will, but thine. His last words on the cross exhibit prayer and gift of self as one when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later, with a loud cry, he surrenders his spirit. All the troubles for all times, states the Catechism, of humanity enslaved by sin and death, all the petitions and intercessions of salvation history are summed up in this cry of the Incarnate Word. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Donald Haggerty. He is author, most recently, of Contemplative Enigmas, Insights and Aid on the Path to Deeper Prayer. Uh, We were talking earlier, you were talking earlier in particular, about um, the Missionaries of Charity and uh, St. Mother Teresa. What about her experience of, or her her lack of consolation for so many years, um, a woman who appeared to the world to be, quote, joyful uh, in the Lord, uh, and yet we learned as the work was being done on her uh, canonization that she had suffered from aridity of soul, dryness, uh, the ab- a sense of God's absence for a, an extraordinarily long period of time. What, what do you make of that? The uh, the book is a great book. Uh, Come be my light, yes. which uh, documents you know in the letters of Mother Teresa, which were uh, came to notice after her death, um, and, and, and as you mentioned, the beatification process. And it would it would seem from the letters of the 1950s into the 1960s, the beginning of the 1960s, that she very likely was undergoing what would be called in St. John of the Cross's traditional terminology, the dark night of the soul, which is not just the kind of common difficulty that everyone has with aridity and lack of consolation, the need to persevere through some hard times of prayer, but, you know, really a kind of cloud, you know, descending upon the soul not losing faith with sometimes newspapers, in right. a few cases, you know, made the claim, not that, but having a real darkness, a, a, a shadow descend upon the soul. Um, but you know, on that point, it's, I put this in the book as well. I remember being in India, and I talked to one of the priests who's in this book, of Come Be My Light, this Jesuit, Father Nooner, who had contact with Mother Teresa in the end of the 1950s, and they corresponded. Mother Teresa was looking for priests sometimes to give her give her some help in, in this. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I remember in a conversation with him in in uh, Mumbai in uh, in India, and he said to me, he was an older Jesuit at that point, past 80. And he said that he said to Mother Teresa at one point, Mother, 
did you ever think that perhaps you're going through this darkness because God does not want you simply to serve the poorest of the poor. He wants you to know yourself what it is to be one of the poorest of the poor. Right, right. And Mother Teresa wrote back to him at some point and said how much this had lifted from her, Hmm. and then two weeks later said it had come back on her. The fact is there's not so many letters after that point. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, and it's to get insight in a way that really there's a poverty of the soul that is entered into the more we, you know, live this quest for God in in a lifetime. To me, that was a, you know, a good lesson in in an unparalleled way. You know, we don't go through the dark night of the soul, but we do. All of us have our, our experience of the cross, and it is to take us into a greater poverty before God. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, love, uh, you quote uh, uh, Simone uh, Wheel here, uh, love is only thirst for love. Uh, in looking at this relationship we have with God in uh, contemplative prayer, there's something about that that I, I, I hadn't heard it said before, so I'm, I'm thinking on it. But love is only thirst for love. So in love there's longing, Right there's yearning, um, and what is it? does that is that love ever entirely fulfilled, or is that yearning itself uh, what we should um, recognize as, in a sense, its own uh, reward? I, I think you got it exactly right there because the you know the reality of relationship with God is I mean He speaks to the soul through this language of longing mm-hmm. and a language of, of thirst and of of yearning and and our own you know deeper soul desire for God this longing is is a true reality of love in the soul it's actually the will is drawn in desire toward God and and God is speaking in the same manner to us you know not, not in words as much as in in yearning and longing for us, for union with with the human person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality of that, though, is it can be painful to be thirsting for, you know, an unsatiated, that's a, you know, a process in a way that goes, you know, on for a lifetime. You know, the greatness of these things, too, the people who really thirst for God are the same people who go outside then and give of themselves. Yeah. And like a Mother Teresa. Yes. And, you know, I think many of your listeners would know that Mother Teresa, from the first first days of the first convent, she always put the words of Jesus, I thirst on the cross, mm-hmm. underneath the right arm of Jesus on the crucifix, you know, behind the altar. And that's in every one of her convents throughout the world. So that reality of Jesus saying from the cross, you know, I thirst. Huh. I thirst for souls. I, I thirst for your love. That, that can animate us, you know, to a kind of uh, response of thirsting love for Him. Let's stay with that just a moment here, a moment longer. So, in in that, um, so you'll hear some people say, "I I hunger, I thirst uh, for the living God," and. Um, at the same time, they are expecting something other 
than silence uh, from him. Uh, how does he speak in that silence? Well, that's a, again something you could you could say that there's a kind of maturing, like everything else in life. You know, you become a better lawyer, you become a better musician, a better professor. That there's a maturing in the life of prayer too. That in relationship with God, that we realize it's we're not really to be seeking experiences mm-hmm. you know, of consolation or messages from God that we could put into words as much as this mystery of encounter with him and and it is you know a, a you know an encounter with with transcendent mystery you know the uh you know, saint, john, saint john of the cross has affected my life a lot i mean to say that that's a mild statement for it but he's so strong on the concealment of god his hiddenness even as we you know are in the presence of the eucharist the apostles who looked him in the face, Mary who looked him in the face, you're still in the presence of ultimate mystery in looking at, at Jesus. Hmm. And that kind of um, you know, incomprehension that we might have, the, the, the mind itself is, is overcome, and also our inner spirit. Nothing of emotion really is really, in some manner, aligning us with God. It's something of soul to Him, mm-hmm. at much deeper layers than we can sometimes perceive. Is, is, is this experience, is there a, a traumatic, is a traumatic experience of the absence of God necessary for everybody, or is that just something that shows up, you know, uh, now and again in the lives of the saints and contemplatives? Well, I, I would say for sure that's only a um, that's a you know would say a rare experience in those terms a yeah. traumatic absence of God. Right, right. I think most even the saints most of the saints did not have the undergo a dark night of the soul. Okay. I mean Saint Therese of Lisieux could possibly be one of those people even at a young age when she talked about she wrote down you know about doubts about the immortality of the soul. Right. She was. In, in this terrible uh, sickness at the end of her life, right. she went through something like a dark night of the soul. But I don't, I don't think that's a common thing, even in saintly lives. Yeah. Um, but you know, something of the this experience of shadowed periods of time. You know, sometimes the convergence of trial in our lives, where we say, "Where is God now? Where you know he he seems to have abandoned me," and yet that can never be the case. Right. He's allowing sometimes purification for deeper faith in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I remember uh, reading uh, th- those passages from uh, Therese of Lisieux and being surprised at how, well, you don't surprise me most about it, not that she went through it, although that was at time troubling for me, but what surprised me about it is her, her honesty in it. That that there was a she was young, um, and yeah. and uh, she was she was candid about what she was. Go- she, she didn't seem to fear being honest. I guess is what I'm saying about her doubts, her um, her her dark the darkness she was undergoing. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point, and I think you know. I mean, there are people who undergo doubt, and 
And I think it's good to be reminded that the, with those things that we sh- we should not willingly embrace them. You know, they can be there are aspects of temptation also, and you know, Teresa Plisu, Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa is a good example, and Teresa Plisu of, you know, contradicting these um, interior experiences of a certain darkness, but contradicting them by their outward demeanor. And, you know, Mother Teresa lived, you know, a very kind of self-giving cheerfulness in her life. Yes, right. You know, you know giving, uh, you know, this happiness to others. So that kind, there's where the will was really, you know, choosing whereas the other can be involuntary experiences, like catching the flu. You can't, you know, you can't make the flu disappear <laughs> simply because, you know, you want to will it away. You have to live through it. Right, right. But on the other hand, you can choose, you know, to, to still get up and do what you have to do. Let me come back to a very basic consideration. Is it true that those who uh, become rich in contemplation, those who become saints, are those who actually insist on daily prayer? Well, for sure, people who are, you know, who have become holy, saintly, you know, they have serious lives of prayer. There is no no holiness without serious prayer, because that means serious relations with our Lord, and so the, the the prayer is the foundation of these things. You know, we we can read biographies of saints, or we may even see a John Paul or a Mother Teresa in our lifetime. But the reality of those lives was very private, also. Yes. You know, how did they pray before God? That's the real secret and hidden truth of their lives. And and you know, in that sense, that's that's good for us to hear too, because the real truth of our lives is. You know, what do we say? How? What kind of personal words do we have, each of us, you know, when we receive communion mm-hmm. or when we're at a Mass? And, you know, God is hearing something very unique from each person. And the danger would be at times when we're, we're not saying things that really are from some deeper region of the heart and soul. Father, once again, thank you for being with me, and thank you for your work in this series on contemplation. And I look forward to talking again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Al. I appreciate you having me. Father Donald Haggerty, these are outstanding books, by the way. Uh, We spoke with uh, Father Donald on uh, contemplative conversion in the past. This one is called Contemplative Enigmas, and uh, I recommend it to you very highly. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. In recent years, several states have been changing their laws on marijuana, either making it completely legal or legal for medical purposes. What do you think is the best policy? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week to share your thoughts. 
Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio Online Store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Well, good afternoon and thank you. Uh, It's been wonderful being with you as we've Really covered a lot of wonderful ground today uh, from an editorial cartoon in the Washington Post that got pulled uh, to thinking about how we, who determines uh, truth and is, is man the measure of truth or is God the measure of truth? And then we looked at, of course, the great medieval mystic Gertrude uh, of Helfta and then Contemplation with Father Donald Haggerty. He's a great writer, by the way. A lot of times people are afraid when you talk about contemplation that uh, there's going to be too much abstract language. Uh, he's, he does a wonderful job, and so I recommend uh, his book to you, Contemplative Enigmas, Insights and Aid on the Path to Deeper Prayer, Father Donald Haggerty. Uh, again, all the books we mentioned are in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. Have a wonderful weekend. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.